Hi, folks. Welcome back to the podcast. My name is Trisha Friedman. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. On today, I am so excited to be talking with Dr. Gina Cox, who is the author of Leading in Inclusion, which is an award-winning book um, and a book that I really appreciated so much. It's got a fantastic framework. It has research. It has anecdotes. Before we start that conversation, I do want to remind you, um, I've had a number of folks reach out to me, folks who follow me on social media have noticed a lot of conversation I'm having about equity and AI, chat GPT, a topic that many folks in education are talking about. And I do have a free guide coming out soon that's all about ways to explore generative AI in your GSA or your SOGI or your student advocacy group. Um, you can get that. If you're following me on social, I'll be sharing about it. It's also going out directly to my newsletter subscribers. You can sign up for that newsletter over there at allyed.org. That's A-L-L-Y dot org. Okay, let me tell you a little bit more about today's phenomenal guest. Dr. Gina Cox is an organizational psychologist, executive coach, and speaker known for her nuanced insights and warm personal style. She advises on leadership influence and impact, career strategy, and inclusion. She's here today to talk specifically about her book, Leading Inclusion, again, a link to that book, as well as uh, a link to learn all about Dr. Gina Cox will be over there for you in the show notes. This is a book that shows how to counter the typically disappointing outcomes from diversity, equity, and inclusion work. Previously, Dr. Cox held internal, corporate, and external leadership roles in organizational consulting talent assessment, selection, and acquisition. You may also know Dr. Gina Cox from the writing that she's done in outlets like Harvard Business Review, Fortune, Fast Company, and Forbes. Again, you will be able to learn all about the work that she does and her amazing book, Leading Inclusion, by heading over to the show notes. Welcome to the show, Dr. Gina Cox. Thanks again. Um, Dr. Cox, I'd love to start our conversation today quoting you back to you um, from your incredible book, which is entitled Leading Inclusion, Driving Change Your Employees Can See and Feel. The quote is, quote, although it is vital to address both interpersonal and systemic bias in organizations, focusing on the systemic bias will have a faster and more scalable impact on disparate outcomes than focusing on interpersonal bias, end quote. Can you speak to an example? I know that you have worked with just countless leaders. I don't even know if you've been able to keep track at this point. Um, you know, anecdotally, an example of a leader who has made that pivot and focused mm -hmm. on, again, the systemic. Yeah. Well, it's, 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 well, let me just say another uh, something to preface these comments, which is that after George Floyd was killed, I'm not sure how this happened, but it appeared to be that leaders were being taught that the things that there, there were two things that they ought to do. And the two things they were being taught to do were number one, conduct implicit bias training. And number two, hire a diverse, do diversity hires. Like it almost was like somebody had given a script and neither of those two things is in and of itself a bad thing. You can certainly do implicit bias training and you can certainly do so-called diversity hires. <laughs> neither of those two things is, is, is wrong per se. However, what I noticed that leaders weren't being taught to do 
was to first think about what it is that they were solving for. And so the two solutions that were being proffered and that were being quickly adopted were, were, some, were sort of being adopted in a very ad hoc fashion that really wasn't resulting in any positive outcomes, not surprisingly. And so you would see the headlines uh, a year after George Floyd was killed and two years after George Floyd was killed. Oh, and I'm only using his name because that seemed to be the reference point that the media was using. We'd see these blaring headlines, little progress. Progress being is very slow. Why aren't we seeing more results? And so that knowing this gave has given me the opportunity to make this clear point to leaders that while implicit bias training, for example, has a place when you're, it, it primarily focuses on the interpersonal aspects of an employee's experience in, in your, in the system that, that, you know, that you lead, for example. And the problem is that while there's nothing wrong with that, there are such, so many other bigger nuts that you must crack over and above what is the nature of my personal interaction with the people with whom I'm close or with whom, you know, with whom I need to get this work done. And so I can think of several clients where I have helped them to understand that what is, I'll think of one client in, in particular, because you're looking for a few more specifics where they had already gone ahead and started this, this so-called diversity, equity, and, and inclusion training. And the very first thing they started with, with was this implicit bias training. And what they discovered was that many managers who were forced to go to training were unhappy about it. They didn't like it. They, it made them defensive. They didn't understand what it was for or why they were doing it. They didn't necessarily change any behaviors. And so by the time I got involved with the organization, I said, well, I don't think that you should beat yourself about the head because you've done this. But what I'm going to ask you is this question. What is your, what is your strategy with regard to diversity, equity, and inclusion? Do you, what, what is it? And I would get the, he would give me this look of like, what do you mean? I said, what, what is your why? Why would you want to do this in the first place? What is it that you're aiming for? What is the outcome that you seek? It took many tries to get that leader to be able to eventually say that ultimately what he desired for his organization, and he would want it sooner rather than later, would that it be, it would be a harmonious place for everybody to work, that anyone who came to work there would feel like they would have a fair shot at whatever successes were available in this organization, you know, that would grow and so on. And that he would also be very happy if the, if the, demos, the distribution of the workforce could look like the available labor force where he was conducting this business. And so what he eventually realized was that he probably ought to stop what he was doing and really step back and then articulate the desired outcomes. And that's what he did. He said he worked with his executive team. To, to, it doesn't have to be a very sophisticated or, or it doesn't have to be a very time consuming process, but to really identify a strategy. And a strategy is simply what are the things that we're going to choose to do in support of this long-term goal? And long-term could be three years, two years, whatever. And they did that. And then they said, in order for these things, we want these things to happen by this period of time. And then they said, in order for these things to happen, what would then, what other things would need to happen? And the minute that they, that he started to, to talk about these things in this way that he himself was involved in the conversation, it became clearer to the rest of the organization that this was something that was really going to benefit everybody. It was going to support the whole business. Um, uh, uh, and that made the, that, I think that is what really makes the hugest difference. So on the implicit bias training thing, it's okay to do that, but recognize that it is not going to take care of any of the systemic 
challenges. And what do I mean by systemic challenges? Well, for example, where do you get your labor force from? Is everybody coming in through a referral by only from people that they know? Who gets promoted? Do you have certain job categories where if you look at the demographic characteristics of those job categories, you can almost predict what the people who are going to look like who are doing, who, you know, who are doing that job versus the people who are doing another job? Are, are the people who are doing the front level jobs or the entry level jobs, what are, the, what are their characteristics relative to those who are leading the organization? Um, which jobs are more visible to the public and have sort of represent the organization and who are the people in those jobs? What are the promotion patterns and the career mobility patterns? And then of course, there's always a lot to, to think about with regard to, to pay, not just pay equity, like are people who are doing similar jobs being paid similarly? But there are also these whole issues of like, well, if only if all of the leaders have these characteristics, then we almost know that all of the dollars are going to be in this group of people and none of the dollars will be over here. And, and so I feel like I'm talking a lot and I'll stop in a minute. But that whole idea of thinking about that or thinking about, well, what is the product? Who are my who do we serve as our customer, as our as our as our clientele, as our as our as our community? And then what do we understand about that group of people that would then inform the way we design, whether it's curricula or some other thing that we create and put out into the world? And does that content and those ser- are those services factoring in this environment, this, um, this larger group? I mean, all of those things I just rattled off are examples of taking a more systemic look at, at a problem. First of all, please don't apologize for for speaking. Quote, you know, your words, not mine. Too much. Um, you know, the thank you for going into that. And and I should say, you know, the book, of course, dives deeper into the role that AI plays in hiring, and again, how that's a system that needs to be questioned. How you know, also performance reviews, right? Um, thinking about things that happen in performance reviews. And if that is sort of like the gold standard for how folks are going to be recommended, looking at what's been happening with that within your organization historically, you know, and and I love that in what you just said, it really, it went, you know, into this question for this leader to really think again about the strategy piece. And I just want to point out to listeners who maybe aren't familiar with your book yet, I love you have bank after bank of questions, and I found that so powerful. They go so perfectly with the framework that you have, very practical framework there. So for folks who are listening and and are thinking, I want to have a strategy too, sometimes, and I think you even pointed this out, like that word strategy might seem intimidating. The framework directs folks, the questions direct folks to do that, that sort of personal work. And I think you know, you work with CEOs and executives. Of course, schools also have their version of a C-suite. But I would also say, you know, in many ways, like the classroom teacher, you are like the CEO of that class. You know, Dr. Cox, you point out how people want their CEO to lead. They want that CEO to lead with these issues and they want that leadership to be immediate, right? That, uh, you know, and, and I would say, my experience with education is the same. Students are very savvy to something has happened. Will the reaction be silence or will it be listening and action, which your book really sets folks up to do? That's um, right. 
And, 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 you know, the funny thing about the whole thing of people are waiting and whether they're students or, or whoever they are, it is true. I mean, that for, most people might not be able to give you a very fancy or clear definition of what a leader is, but they know it when they see it. And they also know it when they don't see it. So to the extent that one doesn't do something and probably you don't do it because you're fearful, you, you know, you don't want to take the risk. Maybe you feel like it's better to not to, you know, you're darned if you do and darned if you don't, if you don't. For anyone who's thinking that, the one thing I can say for sure is that somebody is watching and waiting for you to do something. And when and every day that you don't do something, they're going, well, what are you there for? You know, and, and so, and that goes to any issue, not, not just to this issue. So it is important to, I think, uh, for anyone in a leadership role to think about I call it in my book the designated hitter, although I'm use, I was using that term, monology, more in the sense of direct management. But I do think that anyone in a leadership role is a designated hitter in that there is no one else in the organization who has been appointed to do this thing. That is, in this case, guiding an organization um, in, of, of all kinds of people, right? So you're it, and that is the expectation. Uh, I, I'll go a little further, Tricia, and say that since we're talking about leadership, you know, my framing about this, I don't really believe that there is such a thing as diversity, equity, and inclusion. I mean, the individual words mean something. But but what I have found is that when people put the two words together, the, nice, the three words together in a nice little box, they're talking about some esoteric, abstract thing that they want to hand off to somebody, maybe that looks like me, and say, here, fix it. Like, they think it's a thing that is separate from the whole ecosystem. When in reality... All so-called diversity, equity, and inclusion is, is effective leadership and healthy work cultures, right? So effective leadership and healthy work cultures. It's not a moral obligation. It's not a historical obligation. It's a leadership, you know, obligation. Mm. And, you know, that, that kind of takes me into our next question because, you know, it's interesting you talk about the evolution in the corporate world of the CDO, the chief diversity officer. Schools have seen... Um, you know, kind of a similar role. It might be a director of DEI, DEI leads, committees are popping up and you have this, this thought provoking line in your book, quoting you back to you again. Thanks for your patience with this. Uh, picking up mid quote here, the highest and best use of a CDO is as a coordinating mechanism, someone who can aggregate the viewpoints of many decision makers to address collective choice problems. Anything less may may not help you make meaningful change, end quote. So with these positions, you know, it's interesting because I've been thinking a lot about it as well, just this idea of to what extent is it useful to have this as a separate position when, you know, like you just said, this is the job of every leader, right? And sometimes I think, is it problematic that we're separating it out and saying this is someone else's job versus the reality that, you know, because these conversations, there's been so much silence surrounding issues of race. Um, you know, there are still many schools that I work with where there's a big hesitation to even use the acronym LGBTQ. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so having that supportive role, it can be a support, but your book also addresses the way that, you know, leadership can either leverage that role or can diminish it and make it impossible for that person to move forward. I'm wondering if you might say more about, you know, what leaders can do to create the conditions that will make change for that leadership 
position uh, mm-hmm. possible or more likely. Absolutely. Yeah. So again, speaking about the headlines, the one thing that is clear is that in the last two and a half years, organizations have hired a lot of, of folk to be leaders of so-called diversity, equity, and inclusion. And there, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But my point of view, based on then the, the observation of how those folk have been, the impact or lack thereof that some of those roles have had, my observation is that you know, almost, you know, 30 something percent, 33, I believe is the percentage that has been quoted in the, in the, in the reporting of those roles tend to turn over like within a year or two, uh, within uh, 18 months, because what often happens is that at this, earlier in this conversation, we talked about the need to have a strategic point of view and to focus on systemic change as the best likelihood of getting to some meaningful outcomes. And so often what happened appears to happen is that there might not be a strategy, but yet you hire this person who's to lead this thing that is designed to, to fit into this box. And they come in, you know, really wanting to change the world. But because there is no strategy, everything that they do lacks any meaningful connection to this strategic point of view, to this systemic opportunity for systemic change. So they may do many things that will appear to be just ad hoc. And from an employee perspective, they will appear to be ad hoc. From a peer perspective, their peers are like, well, who, you know, why, why are we doing this? Everything, everything gets questioned because there's no uh, strategic imperative for it. So there's that whole thing. And that's a very um, peculiar circumstance that I think often happens to people in this role, especially if then those people were selected, if one of the criteria was that they had to be a person of color, let's say, or they had to be LGBTQ, or they had to be neurodiverse, or some other um, characteristic that we have focused on, probably for good reason in terms of what we desire as the outcome, but maybe we over-focus on it and making our, some of these decisions. So we have this person now who, frankly, when people see them, all they see is trouble coming because they may not under, they don't have a strategic direction. They may wonder, is this person sincere in wanting to make change or do they have a, a personal agenda? I think there's a lot of stuff that gets confused in that whole process. And so this person with good intention of walks in and they want to change the world and every step that they take, all they find is the pushback from the organization. And then literally sometimes they're not given the money, they're not giving the political clout. I mean, there's so many things. So you don't do your organization any favors if you find yourself to be a person in a position to hire one of those roles, if you hire them without providing some strategic guidance. So I say the very first thing is, don't hire anybody, don't, don't um, buy, acquire, or develop new training, unless you have some idea of what your, what your outcome goals are with this kind of, of a thing. And so you've got to be able to give that person some strategic guidance. You've got to be able to give them financial resources. But I think even more than the financial, it's the political clout, because the person has to know what you believe so that when they step out and try to influence your peer group, and their peer group, and then further down, that they're standing on solid ground and they don't feel like the rug is going to get pulled out from under them, which is what often happens. And then the third thing I'll say on that, Tricia, is that if you don't provide some clear idea of what the desired outcomes are, you can't measure progress and success. You know this, you're educators, right? And so no matter what the person does, 
it's just a bunch of activities that at the end of you say, well, they were accountable and I don't see any change. And you're like, change on what? You never set those criteria up in the beginning. You can't set them up at the end. So it's, 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 these are things I, that one of the things that fascinates me about this, Tricia, is that in no other aspect of running a, an operation of any kind, including a school, would you say we have a big challenge and we're just going to say here, you fix it. It's not done with anything else. I don't know why we would think we could do it with this. Yeah, that, that's a great point. And, you know, your book also kind of furthers the dialogue away from making the so-called business case for it. I really appreciate that you go into that. And I feel like at so many critical passes in the book, you continue to remind the reader, you know, inclusion must have that personal significance. So do that internal work, do that reflection. Um, and, you know, your extensive accomplished background in both organizational psychology, executive coaching, I'm guessing that's really invaluable when you are helping coach leaders towards that position of curiosity. When you look back, countless moments where you've been mentoring, working with CEOs and boards, do you think that there is a shift in terms of the mindsets and skills that's expected of today's leaders? Mm -hmm. Well, um, I believe that at this point, everyone can see that the world is changing in so many different ways. So I believe we can all see that, but I am not seeing a consistent response to that in terms of how organizations are defining defining what effective leadership looks like. But I am hearing a few more positive clues than ever before. I hear the word humanistic pop up in conversations about leadership, where before somebody might have just laughed you to scorn if you talked about human-centered leadership. I'm hearing more about that. I'm noticing that organizations that have decided that we would go to a four-day work week or that we would allow greater flexibility and people working from home uh, and who have said we're going to continue to do that even though the pandemic is over are doing it because they realize that fundamentally, if these are things that make their employees happier, more contented, more satisfied, then they are, they are better employees. They're happier. It's it, it all it, it all turns out to be an advantage to everyone. So I'm seeing more of those kinds of things. Uh, I'm also seeing that um, there is a greater focus on mental health, and so. The American Psychological Association says that 81% of employees who responded to a survey last year said they would they wished that they could have mental health coverage as a benefit in their benefits plans, but only like 31 to 33% of them had actually did actually have that benefit. So they, that would be like a 2021, early 2022 measurement. And so with the new plan here, I'm assuming if you go back and if they go back and look at the data, they will see that there are more provisions for mental health care and benefits programs. So those are all the positive some examples of positive science that I'm seeing that are taking us um, where leaders are beginning to see that they're, they ha can have a broader view of what effective leadership looks like that is more human-centered. On the other side of that, though, um, in the last week or so, some of the leaders of some of the largest companies in the, in the, in this, in the world were at Davos talking about the economic downturn that we're all experiencing and the cost of living increases and so on. And some of them were, were clearly saying, we want to get back to people. We're going to bring back people to the office. 
We're going to, um, maybe an education is not so much of a specific issue, but you know, re- what they were basically saying is we just want to go back to doing the things the way they were in 2019 before the pandemic. And so including conversations about inclusion and, and respect and so on. I think the idea that a leader is, is the controller, the boss, the one that runs the show and tells everybody else what to do, how to do things. I think there's still a lot of that. Um, I also think that um, there's a piece in the book where I talk about a, a book that I absolutely love. It's behind me somewhere. It's called Leadership Reckoning. And there, I talk about um, Tom Kolditz and his team at Rice University and the work that they did, where what they were saying is that educators are a big part of what we need to help redefine what effective leadership is. It's not just, you know, the, the control and command. It's not just telling people. It's not just the strategic thinking. All of the stuff about the human experience needs to be a bigger part of the competencies that we all agree are critical to successful and effective leadership. And so another answer, part of the answer to this question is that no, our, you know, our business schools, our, 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 college, our education programs and so on are still not putting enough emphasis on the human aspect of leadership. And um, the, the question that you asked really was, you know, am I seeing a change? Am I seeing, you know, changes in leadership or in the way that ch- leadership is defined? I think employees, the lowest level employees in the organization that you run, whether it's a school or some other kind of entity, I think they're the ones that are redefining what their expectations are for how leaders will behave, should behave. And that is actually, I think, what is going to ultimately force leaders to really step back and say, what do I need to do differently than how I have been doing it forever? You know, their, their changes are, are essential, will be, will be essential. And, you know, you mentioned just the idea of it's not the great resignation, it's the great re-engagement, I believe is the phrase that you use in your book. Um, you know, final question, I'm just wondering, you know, like I have a friend who's an arborist and I was asking her, like, are you ever able to just like go for a walk in the woods and like not be thinking about uh, all all of your knowledge? And I'm wondering, you know, of course, things that corporate leaders are doing, they, you know, you see them, I'm thinking of the example, um, you know, I really enjoy my my Peloton and I really appreciate actually what they are doing with their lineup of instructors um, you know, it's the first time I've ever had like an exercise class by a queer person who's pregnant and is talking about that experience. Yes. Um, I'm wondering, are there different sort of brands or corporate entities that you engage with? You know, you you show up as a person in this book. You've got research, you have anecdotes, you have your professional side, you have your personal side too. So I'm wondering if there's any kind of corporate entities that you're watching and you're thinking, something interesting must be really happening with their leadership team. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know you've got lots of clients, so I also don't want to put you in a position where it's like, um, yeah, but I can talk about companies that are not my clients um, and that people would recognize because I don't talk about my clients, but um, there's one company, there's a company that I have admired for a very, very long time. The company is MasterCard as an example. And, and I'm confident in talking about this company because I know enough about it to know that it is real versus, you know, sometimes you see things in the news that aren't so real. But um, 
the former CEO, the former CEO and chairman of MasterCard for at least a decade, I believe, was his tenure. Um, and he stepped down in, let's say, 2021, I believe. Our new CEO came on in 2021. Uh, was uh, of Indian descent from the country of India, I mean, and was a Sikh, S-I-K-H. The correct pronunciation might be Sikh. Uh, so I'm not uh, telling you the, the definitive pronunciation of it. I just know the spelling is correct, S-I-K-H. And uh, what does that have to do with anything? Well, I, I got to observing that organization and I discovered that because of his personal beliefs that he approached leadership from the, with the assumption that one of his obligations was that his employees would feel taken care of, not in a paternalistic way, but as if someone had their backs, meaning the leader, him and every other leader, that he could, that he would expect from the values that he would inculcate into this company, that people would value collaboration, put it at the core, as in this is how we do it. There were certain things that he just defined that he wanted for his company. And they came from a personal interest in the human experience in his company. I didn't know why people were, were saying such positive things about the company. But then when I got that whole backstory, I just completely was fascinated. And so when the pandemic rolled around, one of the first things that he said to all of his employees, which I don't think any other CEO had said it at the time because it was such a period of great uncertainty. But I remember when he said, you do not have to worry about your job. We're, people are going to go home and we know it's going to be hard. You're going to have to figure out how to use your computer and you're going to do this. We're going to, don't worry about it. We, this is, this is how it's going to be. We're going to take care of it. But what I really don't want you to worry about is, are you going to lose your job? Don't worry about your job. We, the leaders of this company, our job is to do everything in our power to make sure that you don't have to worry about losing your job. So now go home. First of all, take care of your family's education and health. Then make sure you can do your job. And then when, you know, when you've taken care of all of those things, then we'll worry about the next thing uh, at, you know, at that time. He, he said those things to people. I can only imagine how employees just went, <sighs> right? And so today, you know, he stepped down as, as, a, as chair, became executive uh, chair. There's a new CEO that came in. And just two weeks ago, I believe, three, two to three weeks ago, I was reading Fortune magazine. And there's MasterCard and the new CEO is talking about the MasterCard way. And clearly the ideas that this leader had inculcated are now being, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not documented, but um, there's an expression, uh, you know, they're, they're basically saying, this is how we will do it. We will keep this ideas, ideas of our values going into the future. And we care because we care. We want employees to know that we care. And, always, and at the same time, the company is very successful financially. So that's, an, that's one example of a company where it's like walking the talk of what we're talking about. And, it, and then things like diversity, equity, and inclusion become subtext. Because as you're doing this other thing, everybody is getting taken care of. So there's no need to like wave a diversity, equity, and inclusion flag. It's more, we care enough that every manager is connecting with every employee. So long-winded answer as is my norm apparently, but um, like I would, I just, I read the story two or three weeks ago and I was like, 
oh, I know why this is so, and I'm so happy to hear that it is so, and I, it must be something to work in a company that feels that way. Well, and, you know, for me, again, like the emphasized word there feels, you know, also part of your book's yes. subtitle. And I think that's the point, right? The taking the action is going to have that emotional response, just talking about it, not so much. So thanks. Exactly. You know, and even as you were describing that, you know, I, I, it was like pinging my feelings too, because leadership that's aware, of course, folks who work for you have concerns. We lose sleep at night. You know, I'm yes. thinking of a leader I once worked with who, uh, whenever they would reach out to sort of schedule a meeting, they would also follow it up with like an email, like, it's just about this, like, don't worry. And, you know, even that they would sort of anticipate seeing that meeting pop yes. up unexpectedly on my calendar maybe would cause some anxiety. And they just took that extra step to say, hey, it's just about yeah. this. Don't worry. Yeah, it's 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 a point of view about what a leader is, you know, and I, and, um, I think we can all we can all get there regardless of who we lead and what we need. I think we can all get there. And the, the other characteristic of it is just that then we would give everybody grace because once you understand this point of view, you know, we all make mistakes. And so we will just do better tomorrow, all of us together. Mm -hmm. I can't think of a better note to end on than that. Um, Dr. Cox, thank you so much for your time. Again, the book is Leading Inclusion, Drive Change Your Employees Can See and Feel. All of the links to the books as well as your work will be over there in the show notes. Thank you again for coming on the show. Oh, Tricia, a pleasure, an absolute pleasure. And thank you for your great questions. 